Well, this morning, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13. Nehemiah, chapter 13. We'll find as we read in the book of Nehemiah, in this, in this last chapter, that there's, there's a period of time when Nehemiah, you remember, he's come to, he's come to Jerusalem from, as a cupbearer from King Artaxerxes. He has returned to Artaxerxes for his position there, and then he comes back again to Jerusalem. His first time of coming to the city of Jerusalem was a period of about 12 years. There he served there as a governor. While he was away, he went to, again, back to to serve as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. We do not know the time frame that he was there. We don't know exactly how long he was there. In fact, it's just speculation, just speculation. It was probably somewhere in the range of just over a year. But again, that's not much more than speculation. He returns, we'll find as we read in, in chapter 13 here, to Jerusalem and he finds things in something of a state of disarray. There's some confusion, if especially the ones if you were here last week and just trying to figure out how all this stuff goes together. If we looked at back real quick, chapter 12, remember, was the dedication of the wall. The wall was completed and we're finally getting to the point where they're dedicating this wall to the Lord in this, in this great ceremony that, that took place as we looked at that last week. And how things exactly fit together is, is not easiest. It's not the easiest thing to piece together here just by a, a simple reading of this book because it seems in one sense that things fall in place. One, as it says, for example, in verse 44 of Nehemiah chapter 12, it says, on that day, which seems to be in reference to the day of dedication of this wall, which I in fact read with that, 44 through 47. And that seems to be the case. Then you come down to chapter 13, the very first verse. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. So, if you were reading through this thing, you would come to the end of verse 47, verse thir- chapter 13, verse 1, on that day. And again, it seems that it's speaking of the same day as was given to us in verse 44, this day of dedication. However, you come down to verse 4, and it says, now prior to this, prior to what? Prior to what's given to us in verses 1, 2, and 3. And then what's going on in verses 4 and following, he tells us in verse 6, these things took place when it says, when I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked to leave for the king, and I came to Jerusalem. So you see the timing here can be a little bit confusing here unless you just stop and let's figure this out. It seems that when Nehemiah is using the wording here in chapter 13 verse 1, on that day he's not necessarily being interpreted as being on a specific day, but in the days or in the time frame of certain events. And it's not to be tied into the previous chapter, verses 44 and following, do seem to be indicative of what took place at the dedication of the wall. So all that's said and done as we read through here that there is something of a, of a confusion of time and order here. But if you read through it, say, oh yeah, I see this thing now. But just being aware of that, if you ever read the book of Nehemiah, I trust that you do on your annual pilgrimage through the Scriptures. That you say, oh yeah, this is where we get to and things are kind of out of, out of order as far as they're read. But he kind of he clarifies it as we read through here. So he goes to Artaxerxes in verse 7. He returns to Jerusalem in verse 6. Returns to Jerusalem in verse 7. Again, estimate 
over one year's period of time just simply because of what takes place while he is gone. <clears throat> Upon his return, <coughs> excuse me, any hope of finding matters in good order is quickly dispelled. When Nehemiah returns, he finds a situation which many would have come to and they'd have turned to and they would have thrown up their hands and have given up and said, I've tried, I've done my best and these people are just insisting upon going this way. Give up. However, we find that Nehemiah, he's a man who's still running the race. He is a man who is still fighting the good fight. I've titled my message this morning, Finishing Well. And we see Nehemiah is a man, as far as the record, the biblical record that we have of this man, he's a man who, who is finishing well. And I hope it's uh, more than just a desire from my heart as I finish the book of Nehemiah that I finish this well <laughs> with a good sermon from this chapter here. So let's read with me, beginning in chapter 13. We're going to read the entire chapter, so it's a little bit longer than normal, but there's not much that is here that we can skip and still gather the sense here. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it came about that when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. So now to help you with the timetable here, verse 4, but prior to this. So it seems that this is tying these first three verses into this section. Prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah. You remember Tobiah? From earlier back in Nehemiah. Tobiah, one of the enemies of, of Jerusalem, Tobiah the Ammonite. He'd prepared a large room for, I'm sorry, Eliashib had prepared a large room for Tobiah where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I'd gone to the king. After some time, and that's again, we don't know the exact time frame here, I asked leave from the king. And I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order and they cleansed the rooms and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. So the Levites and the singers who performed in the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And in charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shilamiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And in addition to them was Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O my God, 
And do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its service. In those days I saw in Judah some who were trading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and I said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you're adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not be op- not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load should enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the truth. The traders and the merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in the front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also, remember me, O my God. And have compassion on me according to the greatness of thy loving kindness. In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoken the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them, and I cursed them, and I struck some of them, and pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, You shall not give your daughters... To your sons, nor take other daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And Neil and I were just discussing this morning that church discipline may take on a new order here. <laughs> if you have a beard, hang on to it. Verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him. And he was loved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you've committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So you remember Sanballat, right? Back earlier. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they've defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood and appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. One of the books I have in my office in my library is a book by a man named Plattinga. The name of the book is Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And it's really a doctrinal study on sin. Not the way it's supposed to be. And he just talks about what 
sin has done, how it has so corrupted mankind and how it affects in our relationships one with another and how it affects all of our world around us. And what an appropriate title. It's not the way it's supposed to be. You know, it's, and I think it must be somewhat descriptive of what Nehemiah experienced as he's been away for some period of time from Jerusalem having accomplished so much, so many good things in, in his 12 years there of service, rebuilding the wall and restoring all that was restored, restoring the place of the law of God. And this gone for this period of time and he comes back and he looks and sees and I just can't help but think there's something in his mind that thinks this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way. It should be here. And what we see is that there's an ongoing battle to be fought. There's an ongoing battle in the hearts of these people, in the hearts of Nehemiah, in our own hearts and our lives. And that is a battle against sin. You know, when we got saved, the battle didn't end, did it? It just started. It's a new kind of battle. It's a battle against sin that we, that we must take up. And it's a battle that God has ordained for us. And we must fight in that fight against sin relentlessly. And Nehemiah gives to us a model here, I think, of, of what it is to take on sin. To not become comfortable with it. To not excuse it, but to take it on, to address it, and to deal with it in a relentless manner. What does he do here? First of all, we see that Nehemiah is, comes with an attitude that he has a decided attack. He has decided attack mode. That's his mode. He returns here to Jerusalem, and here it is. He sees the problems. He sees the mess. What does he do? He doesn't go and he doesn't form committees. He doesn't doesn't have some discussion panels to to see, well, what's the real issue here? What are the things that can be done? But what does he begin to do? He begins to attack the problems of sin as he sees them. There's the sin of Eliashib, who's the high priest. What's he doing? He's misusing the temple for his own benefit, allowing Tobiah to come in and to take up residence in the temple there. There's the support of the Levites that's been neglected. They haven't been bringing in the tithes and the offerings. So the Levites don't have any means to be supported. So they've had to leave their positions and go out just simply to make a living for themselves. The Sabbath being profaned. Mixed marriages. And that being the picture there and the reality of a spiritual compromise among the people here. You know, all this stuff going on, you know, this many problems that Nehemiah, it's a situation that most of us would look at and say, all right, We've got to choose our battles here. What are we going to choose? You know, here's Nehemiah. I'm going to take them all on. <laughs> We're going to deal with it all here. As he sees the seriousness of what's before him and as he addresses the issues here. So he begins to attack. But why? Why is Nehemiah so determined to come in and attack these issues, attack the problem, and to attack sin? Because Nehemiah realized that there is a such thing of right and wrong. There is a revelation of God's will. There is God's law given to His people. So that's the standard. It's the law of God. So all he's doing is coming. He's not imposing upon them. These are things that I think you ought to be doing. This is God's standard for us as a people. So we've got to deal with this thing. So he comes in to attack the sin that's taking place. What do we see here? Well, first of all, we see against Eliashib's action where he has allowed who? Tobiah the Ammonite, which explains to some degree why he has included these first three verses. Look on there, it says, In the hearing of the people that they read the book of Moses, there was found written in it that no Ammonite 
or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Now verse 4. Elisha the priest who was appointed over the chamber of the house of God being related to Tobiah the Ammonite. You didn't have Ammonite in your Bible. This is back in chapter 2. <laughs> Tobiah was an Ammonite. Chapter 2 verse 10 tells us. What's the violation? It's a violation of the law of God here. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 32. <clears throat> which is rehearsed to us in these first few verses. But look in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 3 through 5. This looks like one of those I may have written down the wrong reference again. That's all right because it's Deuteronomy 23. That's what it is. It's Deuteronomy 23. It's got it backwards. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. And by the way, the, the expression their 10th generation is not the limitation. It's saying even if they go on that long, they're still not coming in. So it's, it's, a perpetual, it's a perpetual law. Because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam. But the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. So there's a law of God. The law of God is that the Ammonites, the Moabites, are never to enter into the assembly of God's people. And here is Elisha, the high priest, who has opened up the door to the temple and letting someone live there in one of the storerooms there. So again... Nehemiah comes in. There's a right and there's a wrong here. There is a revelation of the law of God that is being violated. What about the support for the Levites? Well, look back in Deuteronomy chapter 12. You don't want to look at all these. You can just jot them down if you want to do both. Deuteronomy chapter 12. Simple verse, verse 19, Be careful that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. It was the responsibility to bring in the people, to bring in their tithes and their offerings. And part of, of what that was for was to support the Levites so that the Levites could be involved in the worshiping aspects of, of what was being done in Jerusalem. They didn't have to go out there and take care of that themselves. They were responsible to bring that in and it's being neglected. But it was also something they had committed to. Book in Nehemiah chapter 10. We've seen this. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 37. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priest at the chambers of the house of our God and the tithe of our grounds to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. So is the law of God. It's something they've already committed to doing this. So it was going back over something that is not new to them. The Sabbath observance. We're not going to turn there. Exodus chapter 20 verse 8. You know it? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The command of God. The Word of God. Look in chapter 10 verse 31. 
As for the people of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will forego the crops the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. What do you see here? This commandment of God is also a commitment they've made. We're going to honor the Lord. We're going to remember the Sabbath day. We're not going to trade on the Sabbath day as, as we have been doing. Yet here Nehemiah returns and that's exactly what they're involved in doing. Mixed marriages in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. It's talking about going into the land in verse 1 of the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Alright? Verse 3, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? Verse 4, For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And their anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will quickly destroy you. Incidentally, this is not, this is not a biblical case, because I don't think that there is one, a biblical case for forbidding interracial marriages. Okay? What you have here, when when I speak of mixed marriages in this context, it is speaking of those where you have, it's a mixing of religion. The people of Israel were a people set apart for the purposes, for the glory of God. And when they would intermarry with these other groups of people, there was the mixing and the mingling of their religion as well. And what did he say? You intermarry with these and you're going to become, you're going to fall after their gods. So that was not to take place. It's not, didn't have anything to do with with race here has everything to do with the purity of God's people and their religion and their worship of God. That's what it's about here. So the mixed marriages that were addressed here in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look at chapter 10, verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. They've been here. So what do we see? We see the people that they have stepped back into the sins that are clearly forbidden by the law of God. Those things they recognized in the revival we saw back in those those earlier chapters that they committed themselves to and now they're right back into the sin. So Nehemiah simply comes and he calls them back to obedience to God's law and also to the commitment that they have already made. God's revealed His will and they already know it. This isn't new to them. They've heard it. They've committed themselves to it. What a model for us to counter sin in our world as we deal with personal sin and realize that, that God has spoken, God has revealed His will, and if we are His redeemed people, we recognize sin in our lives. Folks, here's the, here's the mode of action. Attack. Attack. Deal with it. It's not to be rationalized. It's not to be reasoned with. It's not to be excused. Rather, we are to challenge it. We are to counter it when we see personal sin arise in our lives. Attack it. Don't play with it. Don't put it off. Attack. And so he comes with a decided attack. We deal with sin in the church. Matthew 18 gives us 
the pattern for addressing sin that takes place in the life of a brother. You, you go to them and you go and you address that sin, but you deal with it. We don't attack the individual. That's not the picture I'm wanting to convey here, but we do go, we confront them in humility. We confront them and, and point out the error of their way. And if, they, and if they respond to the one going, then we've won our brother. If they do not respond, you go back with another. And two of you go so that there might be a witness. And if they respond, you've won. If they don't respond, then you come back again as the church and you call this brother or this sister to repentance that you might win them. If they respond, then you've won. And if, you have, and if they do not respond, then they're out. But you deal with sin. Attack it. This is the people that have become comfortable simply reverting back to their old ways. This is what we were doing before. You know, we were doing pretty well. Nehemiah's gone. He just kind of drift, drift back to the old ways. And it, that's what it is spiritually, isn't it? You know, if you're drifting, you're not going forward, right? If you're drifting, you're going backwards, you're going the wrong way. So they, the spiritual drift of this people, and so Nehemiah comes back again to, you know, it's like taking somebody and grabbing them by the shoulders. You know, listen, look at what you're doing here. Wake up. He comes in with a mindset, mindset to attack. This isn't a personal thing for Nehemiah. This is about the glory of God. This is about the preservation of the glory of God through His people. So he comes in and he deals with thing attack. Number two, we see it takes he takes some very drastic action. Very drastic in his action. You know, he doesn't, he's not coming in as a PR guy, is he? He's not looking to build public relations here. He's not coming in thinking what's politically correct here. He comes into this, to this situation and he deals drastically with Tobiah. He comes to the, to the temple and he has his belongings just dumped out in the street, as it were. Dumped out of the temple. Into the room. Clean it out. The Levites, he contends with them. He he reprimands them in verse 11. And this, regarding the Sabbath day, he reprimands the nobles in verse 17. He has the, the gates closed and he warns against those that are they can't get in, so they're outside. And he says, don't come out anymore. If you do, I'm going, to, I'm going to use force against you. Man. This guy's taking drastic action, isn't he? He keeps pushing. You know, he's not content. Well, let's just close the gates and let them be out there. No, he keeps pushing for absolute compliance to the law of God. And you're not going to have temptation outside the wall. Don't come back. We're not trading. You can't, you're not welcome here on Sunday on the, or Sabbath day. Our Sunday is the Lord's day. Regarding marriages, what does he do? He says that he, verse 25, it says that he contended with them. He says that he curses them. He strikes them. He pulls out their hair and he made them swear. What do you mean cursing? What can, what's going on here? I mean, is this a godly man? What does it mean? It means he's placing them under a curse if they don't repent. So it's not like just coming in and, and just all sorts of foul languages. We think of cursing. That's not what's involved here. But he's saying, may the curse of God be upon you if there is not a repentance from your sin. And he even has Jehoiada's son, verse 28, removed from the priesthood. Dealing pretty drastically. Why so drastic? Why so drastic in his actions? Because drastic matters, drastic times call for drastic 
measures. And when dealing with sin, we must not trifle. We must not play. Why? Well, first of all, there's some things that he recognizes. He recognizes sin's advancing nature. Sin's advancing nature. Eliashib's sin, Eliashib's sin there in the first few verses was what? He opened up the door. He opened up the, the storeroom in the temple for Tobiah to come in and to be a part of Tobiah as an Ammonite. Which, that's obviously sin. So he's, made, he's opened the door here. What resulted in that? Probably. Can't tie it in definitively here. But probably the neglect of the provision for the Levites, which he dealt with in the next section. Why is it the people aren't bringing in the, the provision for the Levites? Probably because they're looking at this situation and they're saying, what is Tobiah doing in the temple? So the people are disgusted and so they're not bringing anything in. The advancing nature of sin, it doesn't just affect us, it moves on, it begins to affect other people. So they look and they're disgusted, they stop to bring anything. But even in his own grandson... Verse 28. Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib. So this is Eliashib, the priest we see in the first part of the chapter. His grandson, say the son of the son of Eliashib, of Eliashib is Jehoiada. But it says one of the sons of Jehoiada, okay? Was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. What do we see here? We see... By the example of a grandfather who disregards the the separate nature of the people of God by bringing in Tobiah and Ammonite, who is forbidden by the law of God from being in the assembly of the people of God in any in any sense of the word, and he's living in the temple in a storage area. We see the grandson who marries unlawfully. Look in Leviticus chapter twenty-one. Leviticus chapter 21, verse 7. There's very clear instructions given to those of the priesthood and who they're to marry. They shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for he is holy to his God. Look down in verse 14. A widow or a divorced woman or one who is profaned by harlotry, these may not take, but rather he is to marry a virgin of His own people. There's the law of God regarding the priesthood. Mary, you're to marry one who's never been married before, even if she's a widow, just because of this unique position of the priesthood. These were to marry someone, a virgin of His own people. What do we see here? We see in verse 28 that this grandson of Elisha has... He's a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. He's married into a heathen family. And what happens? Well, it brings about the pollution of the priesthood. The priesthood is polluted by his marriage. And so Nehemiah sees the situation and he removes him from his position there. But what do we see here? We see the, we see the advancing nature of sin. As Elisha opens up the door and in and lets this man come in and discourages other people. And so they become involved in sin because they don't, they don't want to support this anymore. So they quit sending their tithes and their offerings. The Levites are not provided for. And you see it in his own family. 
as he's broken down the distinction of being the people of God and his own grandson who is a priest, who's to serve in the priesthood, violates the law of God. It's by the example. See, sin, sin just advances. Just advances. It never stands still. Regarding the Sabbath being profaned, it's just like Nehemiah looks back at his expresses back in verse 16 here. Also, men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise, and they sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath. And then it's almost like this is the unthinkable. Even in Jerusalem. Of all places, that you have these foreigners coming into Jerusalem by the example set by the people of Israel, of Jerusalem. They're coming in from the outside now, even to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. See, sin knows no boundaries of sacredness. It just advances. It presses on. Regarding the mixed marriages, look down to verse 26. Verse 25, he's contended with him. Verse 26, look what he says. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding this thing? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused, here it is again, even him. Even King Solomon and all of his wisdom, even King Solomon who was greatly loved by God and among the many nations there was no king like him. And God made him a king over all Israel. Even he, even he succumbed. The advancing nature of sin, it gets the kings too. See that in other places, don't we? King David. No man's immune. So Nehemiah, he, he sees, man, we don't, we got to get a handle on this thing. It's going to spread like wildfire. And it is. It's having its effect. Look what it's doing. And as he warns them, he says, look, it's even in Jerusalem. Look, it's even made men, men like King Solomon, the wisest of men, fall. So it takes drastic action. But not only sin's advancing nature, but also sin's constant return. Nehemiah's appeal regarding the profaning of the Sabbath day. Verse 18. Did your fathers do this? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Sin's constant return. Here's the return for sin. When I, when I say constant return, here's what I mean. Sin does have a return. Eventually, it's destruction. It's a pretty poor return on things. You want to invest your life into a life of sin, this will be your return. He said, listen, our fathers, they did this so that our God brought all this trouble on us. Sin always has a payback. There is, as R.G. Lee's out of Memphis said, payday someday for our sin. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 4, he says, 
You've not, in your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding blood yet. You've not yet resisted to the shedding of blood in your struggle against sin. That's what Jesus said. He said, if you're, this is pretty drastic. If your right eye makes you stumble, you tear it out. You throw it from you. If your right, eye, if your right hand makes you stumble, you cut it off and you throw it from you. So it's better for your right hand that one of your parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go to hell. Obviously, we understand that He's not speaking that we literally do these things, but He is, he is teaching this. You deal with sin drastically. Whatever it takes. Sometimes, sometimes in the right in the Scriptures, it's just run. It don't be a man take it on. It's run. Flee idolatry. Flee immorality. Flee. deal to take drastic action against sin. It has lousy returns. One day we're going to give an account to God for it. it. Inevitably it advances not only in our own personal lives but also in the lives of others. You look look at one area of sin in your own personal life and where you start seeing it manifest the fruit of that in other areas of your life. That's why Satan's content many times in life. Just, just give him a foothold. Just give me one little area here. Because if I've got one foothold in... I can spread. Deal with it drastically. Third, we see in the struggle against sin, Nehemiah has a devotional attitude. Four times in recording these events, Nehemiah prays. Verse 14, Remember me for this, O my God. Do not blot out my loyal deeds which I performed for the house of my God and its services. Verse 22, about midway through the verse, For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of thy loving kindness. Verse 29, Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And then verse 31, the very last, Remember me, O my God, for good. Three of these four remember me. Now, this is not to be interpreted in any manner as a works righteousness. God, remember what I've done here, and you know, I've done good, now you do good. That's not that's not what this is. This is a plea for covenant faithfulness. As a child of God, as a man who is of the people of God, it's God asks you to be true, even as untrue as I have been and we have been, I ask you to be true to your covenant, to be faithful to your covenant that you've made with me and with your people. It's asking for compassion according to God's loving kindness in verse 22. There we see the heart of it. For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion, have mercy on me according to the greatness of thy what? Thy loving kindness. There's that word, hesed, that love, that loving kindness. asking God to simply honor one who honors Him. Which is what God said He would do. I will honor those who will honor me. He's confident. Nehemiah has some confidence that his actions are right because he is simply defending and declaring God's law. He's not imposing the law of Nehemiah. He's not imposing Nehemiah rule. 
He's bringing forth again. Here's the law of God. And so he speaks forth and he acts with confidence. With a spirit of devotion before God. This is God's law. It's a man who lived before the face of God. You know, we've got to remember that in our battle and our struggle against sin that you know, we are to have an attack mode. We are to be willing to take drastic action. And we are to have this devotion attitude. We've got to remember in the context of all this that our ultimate resource against sin is the strength of God. It's not a matter of stir up all the strength and muster up all that we have within us so we can impress God. No, it is a taking an attitude and mind of spirit of attack against sin, of drastic action against sin, devotional attitude in the battle against sin, to say, Lord, I need you. I need you. And to be willing to cast ourselves anew and afresh and say, Lord, I am not, I am not adequate for this battle of sin. I'm not. Would you give me your strength? Would you pour out your grace upon me? And it is we fight by his strength, by his strength given to us. So, Nehemiah, he sees, as we've seen countless times through the book here, he sees God's hand. He sees his need of God. God, remember me. Remember me in this fight. Remember these things that I've done, not for credit. Lord, remember your faithfulness. Remember your covenant. And as a child of, as one of your children, one of your people, I desire to to be yours, to experience your grace. Again, we don't know the rest of the story of the life of Nehemiah. He, for all practical purposes, after this book, he disappears. But what we do have, what we do know of Nehemiah, is that he was a man that what we see from beginning and the end in the biblical record. We see a man who was determined to do right. He was a man who was determined to finish well. And again, the man in the biblical record, he does. He finishes well. Much like the words of the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. If we're going to finish well, we're going to do it in a battlefield. And we're going to battle sin. And we must do it. Deciding to attack. Drastic in our actions, but devotional in our attitude. Casting ourselves upon the Lord for His strength. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank You for the resources that we have against sin. And we thank that we can know that there is sin because of Your Word, but we also can experience a measure of victory over sin because of our standing in Christ. Because of the Spirit of God who is given to us in this battle. And Lord, for whatever reason, You've ordained that though we would be those who are redeemed and saved and delivered from the mastery of sin over us, that still we battle with this indwelling sin. Well, we would like to be free from it altogether. Know that that will not take place until we're called to be with You or until You, until you return. Lord, give us grace to see it for what it is. 
Lord, we confess that we we did not see the horror. We did not see the ugliness. We did not see the ramifications of sin as we ought. <clears throat> but we can know some measure of how serious sin and its consequences are because of the price that was paid to deliver us. We thank you for your Son. And we thank you that our our battle against sin is not one of our own strength, but it is Christ in us. Lord, as we come to your table today, we pray that we would be those who can give clear expression of, of deliverance from sin, the power of sin, the rule of sin. In Jesus' name we pray.